I'm not sure exactly how many messages we're going to have in this little mini-series, but I wanted to be able to combine some of the things that I've been writing and some of the things that I've been thinking about into a little mini-series entitled, The New Man in Christ. The New Man in Christ. And I want to bring that to you this morning and in the next several Sundays that we have together. So I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. Paul's epistle to the Colossians. I trust this will be a dynamic study as we go through this very, very important part of the epistle to the Colossians, explaining some things that are so incredibly crucial for our understanding in the Christian life. The Bible speaks of believers in Jesus Christ as experiencing all things new. Newness. That is a very, very prominent theme, by the way, if you haven't noticed it in your study of the New Testament, the concept of newness in Christ. It's a very, very important topic, and yet it is one that I think sometimes is often overlooked, this concept of what it means to be new in Christ. What does that word new mean? What is its import for the Christian in the Christian life? Someone well said in summarizing this concept of newness for the Christian, said these words, God will create new heavens and a new earth. Revelation 21.1, 2 Peter 3.13. The new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven and be planted among human beings. Revelation 21.2. God will provide new wine for the eschatological banquet. Mark 14.25. He will give to his people a new name, Revelation 2:17 and 3:12, and he'll give them a new song, Revelation 5:9 and Revelation 14:3. He will make all things new, according to Revelation 21:5. A new creation is the glorious end of the revelation of God's salvation. The Bible speaks a lot about what it means to be new in Christ. It obviously says there'll be a new heavens and a new earth, a new Jerusalem, a new banquet, a new name, a new song, a new creation. And if that wasn't all that the New Testament spoke of, revealing who we are as the new man in Christ, the Old Testament scripture has much to say as well regarding the new man in Christ, looking at it, of course, from a future perspective. Someone said, the prophets looked forward to the day when God would do a new thing. Isaiah 43, 19. When God completes his redemptive work, he will make a new covenant with his people. Jeremiah 31, 31. He will implant a new heart and a new spirit within them. Ezekiel eleven nineteen. 19. He will call them by a new name. Isaiah 62, verse 2. He'll give them a new song. Even the Old Testament speaks of that, Psalm 96, verse 1. And he'll create a new heavens and a new earth, Isaiah 65, 17, and Isaiah 66, 22. In other words, God is truly doing his work in his people because of Jesus Christ. We who know him will one day realize the fullness of our new humanity in Christ. It's a very, very prominent theme in the Bible, and it is the subject of Paul's third chapter in his epistle to the Colossians. And as you have turned there 
And in order for us to realize the full import of our message this morning, I want us to read all of chapter 3. Verse 1. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, Put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. The first 17 verses of Colossians 3 provide us with a magnanimous look at our new man in Christ. But of course, rather than just diving into Colossians chapter 3 in mid-course, it's really good for us to understand why Paul wrote the epistle to the Colossians and the background of those in Colossae. What were they dealing with? Why was Paul writing to them? What was the essence of what was going on in Colossae at the time that Paul wrote? Well, first of all, the Colossians were being told some pretty amazing things by several groups of people in their day. Let me tell you about them. There were really three of them that we could characterize, not so specifically that we're leaving any other group out, but these three seem to be those who were most affecting the people at Colossae. The first group were what we call the Gnostics. You probably have heard that term before. You may be very familiar with it, but in case you're not, let me just bring you up to speed with who the Gnostics were. They were an early first century movement which emphasized basically three things. Number one, they emphasized that a higher truth that only the more enlightened could receive from God 
was what they were all about. They had the secret knowledge. They had that which was transcendent, that which was higher than just the normal man. And usually they received that knowledge, at least in their view, from some angelic mediation or some angelic visitation. They had the secret knowledge that no one else could attain to. And if you were to have any of that knowledge yourself, you were supposed to get it from them. They were the Gnostics. It's from the Greek word gnosis, which means to know. And they were the ones that they believed were in the know. And so that's why they were called the Gnostics. Secondly, they taught that all matter was evil. And so the physical body, they believed, was simply that which was evil. It was inherently evil. There was no good to it at all. And then thirdly, they also specifically denied the humanity of Jesus Christ. And wouldn't that be obvious if they believed that all matter was evil? They believed that Jesus Christ certainly couldn't be a human being since all matter was evil. All physical beings were inherently evil, so therefore Jesus Christ could not have been human. And the Apostle Paul, knowing that the Colossians were being assaulted, pelted by this movement, now writes them and confronts them about these heresies and he confronts them head on. In fact, he wrote them regarding the true nature of Jesus Christ. Look with me at a couple of passages which hits the Gnostic heresy head on. Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 to 17. There he says in essence responding to the Gnostics, and he that is Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And the first thing that the Gnostics were going to be confronted on and the Colossians were going to be taught regarding was that Jesus Christ is the divine creator. And Paul also said, both to the Gnostics and to those in Colossae, he is also God in human flesh. Look at verses 18 and 19 of Colossians 1. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place, preeminence in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of the Godhead to dwell in Him. Deity. But Paul didn't stop there. He also said, no, Gnostics, you're not right. You're teaching false doctrine because Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. He is human. Look at verse 20. And through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. You see why Paul says that to the Colossians now? He is specifically responding to the Gnostic heresy that denied the humanity of Jesus. And Paul says no. He was an atonement through the death in his fleshly body. Now, he was a human being. He was the God-man. In fact, in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, 
It says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. He's specifically referring to these groups who were teaching the Colossians these false things. According to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. You see, he was challenging the Gnostics and their view of the, of the small secret group who believed they had the secret knowledge. And Paul is saying to them very clearly, the only mystery, the only secret, is that which I'm now going to reveal to you, and that is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the mystery. Colossians 1, verses 26 and 27 says it. That is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations. You want to know the secret knowledge, Gnostics? You want to know, Colossians, what the, the big secret is, the big mystery which is now going to be revealed? It has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. Here it is, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Wisdom is available to every man. That's what Paul's saying. Wisdom is available. And we don't receive it through angelic visitation or mediation. We receive it through the word of truth. He says in verse 18 of chapter 2, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels. See, that is, a, that is an attack by Paul head on to the heresy that was being promulgated that day. You don't need to receive the vain philosophy of men who believe they have a visitation from angels that is revealing the secret knowledge. And he challenged them also on their view that all matter was evil by commanding the Colossians to obey with their bodies. You can see that very clearly coming out in chapters 3 and 4. And this last issue of the matter of evil, that the physical body was nothing more than an evil thing, was really also believed and supported by a second group that Paul was dealing with. Not just the Gnostics, but with those that we could call the ascetics. The ascetics, the ascetic movement. And that was very, very prominent in Paul's day when he wrote to the Colossians. The ascetic movement was this. They imposed certain rules, certain regulations in order to produce what they believed was Christian perfectionism. That if you fulfilled certain standards, you would ensure salvation for yourself. Or if you were already saved, you could maintain your salvation by making sure that you followed a certain set of rules and guidelines. Obviously related to your physical body. The ascetics. And there was also a third group. We could call them the Judaizers. You're probably a lot more familiar with the Judaizers. The ascetics and the Gnostics are a little bit more mysterious because the New Testament doesn't give us a lot of background as it does the Judaizers. The Judaizers were what we could call the legalists. The legalists. They also had a whole set of rules and regulations and rituals to follow in order to be saved or to remain saved. The Judaizers were a group that attempted to impose the standards and the laws and the regulations upon Christianity itself. They insisted that all the Gentile converts had to follow the Mosaic law, circumcision, in order to be accepted by God. And can you imagine the Apostle Paul coming into the 
Colossae area and realizing all of this heresy that was around the people who had been shared the gospel and that they had been saved and were believing people. And now Paul is distressed and he's writing and talking to them. And he says, don't be deceived by all of these groups of people. And he's going to have much to say in this epistle to the Colossians about these groups and their teachings. He says in chapter 2, verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through this philosophy, this empty deception, the tradition of men, the elementary principles of the world. Verse 11, he says, And in Christ you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And can you see what Paul is doing there? He's saying... The legalists, the Judaizers, would say this is what you have to do to be saved. You have to be circumcised. And Paul turns it inward. He turns it spiritual. And he says, no, it is not the circumcision of the flesh physically. It's the circumcision of the heart. It's made without hands. He says in verse 12, you've been buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith. It's not something physical. It's something by faith. It's not something by sight. It is the working of God. It says in verses 16 and 17, Don't let anyone act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Can you see the rituals and the regulations being propounded there? And he's responding to every single one of them. And he says, Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You can see very clearly what Paul is doing. All of the groups of people that I'm arguing against, they're telling you that this is the way to Christianity. This is the way to be acceptable by God. And he's saying that is not so. I don't want you to be taken captive to all the elementary principles of the world. What I want you to do is realize that it is something inward. It is something spiritual. It is something that God is doing not just with the flesh, but with the heart. That which is inside and he says let no one keep defrauding you verse 18 of chapter 2 of your prize inflated without cause he says by his fleshly mind not holding fast to the head that's Christ from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God and he says in verse 20 you've died with Christ to those elementary principles of the world why as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees? What kind of rules? What kind of regulations? What kind of rituals? He says here, decrees such as verse 21, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Can you see the obvious physical implications there? Do not do these things. He says, which all refer to things destined to perish with the using in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom. I mean, these groups are coming in. They're not foolish. They're not dumb. They understand which are the hot buttons that they need to push, which makes it look as though what they're teaching you is the wisdom of God. It looks like it is the essence of Christianity. He says it has the appearance of that, but really what it is is self-made religion, self-abasement. That what you're doing to your body. Severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. 
Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying don't buy into the philosophy of the Gnostics. Christ and his wisdom is sufficient for you. There's no need for some angelic visitation or mediation. Simply hold fast to the head. That's Christ. And the body is not simply a matter of evil. And as Christians we strive, we labor, we buffet our body because we know that even though there are some evil things that our mind does that our body then follows after, the body is not inherently evil as though the spirit is all good and the body is all evil. That's a false dichotomy. That's a false dualism. Don't buy into that. He's saying don't be deceived into thinking like the Judaizers, the legalists, or the ascetics. Christ is our focus, not ourselves. Don't delight yourself in self-made religion. All the things that you set up as reasons for your spirituality and your acceptance before God. He said it's self-made. It'll not do anything. It has no value, he says, to bring you any closer to God. And he says it's of no value against fleshly indulgence. You know what he means by that? You do these things. You follow these rules, you follow these regulations, and not only will it not bring you any closer to God, but it also will not restrain your flesh at all. Won't do anything. Won't do anything for you. It's of no value whatever. So don't adopt some human philosophy, persuasive arguments, empty deception, traditional elementary principles of the world. It's going to perish. It's going to perish. Christ has set us free from the old world, from the old age, from the old eon, and he's given us the new age. He's given us the new eon. He's given us the new humanity in Christ. That's his point. That's his point. We are the new man in Christ. And peppered throughout the book of Colossians is so many statements which are not only opposite of what they had been taught by these groups, but he was constantly reminding them of who they were as the new man in Christ. Chapter 1, verse 28, complete in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 5, good discipline, godly discipline. Chapter 2, verse 5, a stable faith. Verse 7 of chapter 2, firmly rooted. Verse 7 of chapter 2, built up in Christ. Verse 7 again, established in your faith. And verse 10 of chapter 2, you are complete in Christ. You're the new man. There's no reason to do old things because you're a new man. You're a new man in Christ. And what is true of individuals, you're a new person in Christ, is true also of the group. We are the new humanity in Christ. We're not like the old principles of the world. We're new. Don't follow the ascetics in their directions. He says, I'll tell you from chapter 2, verse 9, all the way through the rest of the chapter, who you are, both in your thinking and in your doing. That's the point. Now, that was a background. That was an introduction. That really gets us to the point where now we begin, in, at least in some small way, to understand what he is doing when he arrives in chapter 3, verse 1. Okay? Here's what he says. He says, now, since you are the new man in Christ, since you are a part of the new humanity, since you don't follow the vain philosophies of the world, the old age, the old humanity, here's what you're to do. And in chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, he tells us 
that you're to do two things, two primary activities. One, in verse 1, is their pursuit of heavenly things. Their pursuit of heavenly things. And then secondly, in verse 2, their preoccupation with heavenly things. Their pursuit of those heavenly things, but not just a pursuit. Secondly, a preoccupation with heavenly things. And both those principles, what we're to do as the new man in Christ to pursue heavenly things and to be preoccupied with heavenly things are both as a result of a basis and an object. Both of those. A basis for doing that and an object to follow. And we're going to see that as we work our way through the first four verses of chapter 3. He says, does Paul, that they can only respond in righteousness in this life, whether that's just they themselves or in response to heresy that they're being pelted with, the only way they can respond in righteousness is to understand that their thinking needs to be changed and that their behavior needs to be changed. And that's the way it is in the Christian life for all of us. If we do things physically, actions, the response of our will, if we do things and yet we are not thinking clearly, that's legalism. That's legalism. If we do not know the right thing to do as to our thinking, and yet we're doing some outward external form of what someone says is right, that's legalism. That's pure and simple legalism. And that's exactly what Paul is endeavoring to argue against. And yet, if you think of what is right, if you know what is right, and you do not behave that way, that's disobedience. That's disobedience. That's hypocrisy. If you are a person who thinks the right things and does not do them, you're a hypocrite. And if you do something from some external formula and yet you do not have the heart with the intent to do right, then that's legalism. And Paul is saying in Colossians chapter 3 and chapter 4, I am going to show you how to both think and do what is right. Your behavior will change and your thinking will change. And in order to have an influence on their culture, he says they must understand fully what Christianity is all about. And is that not the clarion need of our day? Is it not the major need of our day for our culture to see us change as the new man in Christ, both to our thinking and our behavior? Certainly the world has seen enough, plenty, of those whose thinking is wrong because they're legalists and people whose behavior is wrong because they're hypocrites and vice versa. There are two different realms of Christianity that people see. Those that are right because their thinking and their behavior is to the glory of God because they're the true humanity in Christ and all of those who claim they're that way but are not doing it with regard to their thinking or their behavior. Which category do we fall in? Do we fall in the category that is the true new humanity in Christ that has both our thinking and our behavior changed to such a degree that we're influencing the culture around us? Or are we those who say we're doing the right things but are only doing that which is the form, the external? Or we're those who say we are 
thinking the right thing, but we're not doing the works of God. That's certainly a brand of Christianity that is very prevalent, very prominent out there in our world. And frankly, most of the people who reject Christianity are rejecting that, aren't they? Because they say, is this what you say is your transformation? Is this what you say is the work of God in you and in your life? Is this the result? Is this the kind of thinking that speaks of Christianity? Well, you've adopted psychology. You've adopted sociology. You've adopted every other ism and schism and spasm. Everything in your life is an affront to the Christianity that you say you affirm. This is how you can be accepted by God and acceptable to God. And Paul is coming along and saying, absolutely not. Don't buy in to these elementary principles of the world. And he says to them in chapter 3, as he moves into what we could call the application section of the epistle, here's what I want you to do. I want you to know what is right, know what is true about you, and then I want you to act upon that which you know. And that's the Pauline formula. That's what he does all the time. He says, here you are, here is how you are to behave. In fact, you could do a study and compare all of his epistles and come to this conclusion. The first section of the epistles, here is what you are. The last section of the epistle, here is what you are to do as a result of what you know. First 11 chapters of the book of Romans, doctrine, theology. Here's what you are all about. Here is what is true. Here is sin. Here is judgment. Here is the law. Here is condemnation. Here is what you are. Here is justification. Here is salvation. Here is sanctification. Here is glorification. And then he turns the corner in chapter 12, verse 1, and says, Therefore, and I believe the therefore is therefore because he's saying, as a result of all the 11 chapters of doctrine that I've just given you, now, now you know what is right, and now you must present your bodies as a living sacrifice, as a testimony to God of what I have just affirmed to you is true. Now you're supposed to do what you know. And in fact, I'll mention later on, if we have time this morning, if not next time, that in Paul, there is a concept that is true theologically and practically. Practically, we might know it to be true, but theologically, we might not always understand it. And that principle is this. What I just described to you, what you know to be true, what is true of you, and what you're to do with what you know, is what some theologians call the indicative and imperative. It's a very, very keen concept in the teaching of the Apostle Paul. What he's saying is this. What is true, what is indicative of your nature, what you know to be true, what is true of you as a believer in Jesus Christ, what is indicative of the warp and woof of your being. As a result of that, I am telling you imperatively, as a command, live out the reality of what you are. Or as someone once said very astutely, become what you are. Become what you are. This is who you are in Christ. Now live like it. And that's the principle of what Paul is suggesting the indicative and the imperative. It is indicative of who you are, now it is imperative that you show the world that that's exactly what you are. That's the Pauline concept of indicative and, and imperatival. And that's going to be a very, very important concept for you to grasp. 
Because when you read the epistles of Paul, all 12 of them, maybe more if he wrote the epistle to the Hebrews, that if you read those epistles, you will see coming through over and over and over again the Apostle Paul saying very clearly, in very clear terms, this is who you are in Christ, become what you are in Christ. This is indicative of your nature. This is indicative of who you are. And you see, that's why Paul is so keen on this concept of old man, new man. And I hope to describe in the coming weeks to you, in maybe vistas of thought that you haven't considered before, what it means to be a part of the old man and what it means to be a part of the new man. You see, it takes on more than just some individualized characteristics. It is for us the realization that Paul is saying that once you believed in Christ, he has taken you out of an old realm, an old realm of thinking, and he has translated you into a new realm of thinking. You are not the old man anymore. You are the new man in Christ. And while it obviously does have very real, individualized, personal application for the individual believer, Paul's primary reference to these things is not individual. It is not individual. What he's saying is this. Yes, you are all part as individuals of the whole, but the whole is what God is doing. God has translated a body of people, the elect, out of the realm of that which is old, which is dying, which is dead, and he is translating you into the realm of that which is new, that which is alive out of the realm of the old into the realm of the new, the new man in Christ. And you know what God is doing? He is doing it eschatologically. That's a word that means final things. There is a plan. God has a plan. And he is working his plan to his perfect degree. And he has a plan to redeem out of sinful humanity, the old man, a group of people, the elect, and that his plan is inexorably moving forward, and as that last person is saved, the elect has been brought in, God will be ultimately glorified, because what he is doing in terms of his eschatology is bringing all of this to a final, culminating, climaxing point. You see, a lot of times, we in our Christian lives, I think, are so focused upon who I am, what I am doing, all of my problems, my issues, my trials, my tests, and those are important because it involves us. But transcend that for a moment. Go outside of that for a moment. Understand that you are a part of a bigger picture. What is God doing in this world? What is he doing in the big picture kind of thing? And God is moving in his final work to create a new humanity a people who would be called by a new name with a new song and ultimately even for our eternal dwelling place he's going to create out of the old that which is a new heavens and a new earth and he's going to present it to us as a new people who will glorify God. See, that's what God is doing. He is taking us out of this old and giving us the new. See, that brings for me, and I hope for you, a whole new perspective of what the new man in Christ is all about. We could call it realized eschatology, that God has, has, in our realization, brought us to a place where we are not just individuals. We are a group. We are a body. We are a, a body of people who are being given a new heart, a new name. And I'll even endeavor to say 
that in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. That's what God is doing. He is bringing all of us as individuals for the group a new created order, a new creation, a new man. And God is giving us as individuals and as that corporate entity a new fellowship. You see, that's why it is so opposite of this concept for someone to say, well, you know, I, I, don't, I don't believe that it's, it's really important for me to fellowship in a local church. I don't really believe it's important for me to be consistent in my fellowship. I don't really believe it's important for me to, to always be around believing people. And they go on and on and on with this. And my response to that is, I think you've lost the whole point of what it means to be the new man in Christ. You are inextricably a part of us. You cannot be divorced from us. And it may be even true that those who profess themselves to be a part of the new man, if they don't manifest the characteristics of that new nature, of that new humanity, that we will have to sometimes result in church discipline with those people because they're not a part of the new man. They're not a part of the new humanity in Christ. They're not a part of us because we are new. They are manifesting the characteristics of the old man, of the old life, of the old humanity. And God says to us that there is going to be a group of people who are going to be carved out of the world at God's design and His plan and purpose is going to move that new humanity to a place where they will realize ultimately and finally that they together will glorify God because we are the new man in Christ. That's why Christ came. That's His purpose. And what He's doing in us is He is providing a transformation of our thinking and our behavior. Why? So that we could be distinct and different from the old man, from the old humanity. Now, you're saying at this point, now, now wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought that I still had the old man. I, I thought that all of this battle that I have in the Christian life is the battle uh, of the old man and the new man that's inside me. Not so. Not so. It's not true. In our little series that we're going to be doing, I'm going to show you passage after passage that says that that old man has died. He's dead. He's dead. But you say, now wait a minute. But what about all of those passages that say, kill him? If he's dead, why do I need to kill him? Aha. Indicative imperative. It is indicative that the old man has died. It is imperative that you kill him. You say, that's a paradox. You're right. You're absolutely right. That's a tension. That's, that's true. There is a tension there. And here's the tension. We, all of our lifelong as the new man in Christ, will be progressing to the point where not only has he died in the sense of my position, but he has died with regard to my practice. That's indicative. That's imperative. That's position. That's practice. That's corporate. That's individual. Folks, this is what God is doing, and this is what the New Testament teaches. That there is in me nothing of the old constitutionally with regard to who I really am. Why? Because God has come into my life and changed me constitutionally. He has brought to pass in my life an absolute overhaul 
of my thinking, my behavior, my wants, my desires, all of those things. And he has taken me out of the realm of that old man and he has put me in the realm of the new man. You say, well, what is that that still prompts me to sin? Very clear principle, don't forget it. Sin does not now reign, but sin remains. Sin does not now reign, R-E-I-G-N, but sin remains. In other words, when God translated us out of the old man by crucifying it, by the cross of Christ, and transferring us into the new humanity in Christ, He did a whole lot of wonderful, wonderful things. But here's one thing He didn't do by transforming me and translating me into that new realm. He didn't eradicate sin from my life completely and totally. You say, why not? Why not? Why didn't God do that? It would be so much easier. Absolutely, it would be so much easier. But think about this. It might be a little easier in terms of our struggle with sin, but how much more glorifying will it be to God when sin is ultimately vanquished? When God will one day say that one of the purposes for my allowing sin to remain in your life and you will fight against it is so that one day by my spirit and by my word and by my plan and purpose, sin will be ultimately eradicated from the entire universe. That will give cause for greater glory to Jesus Christ. Absolutely. Yes, he could have eradicated sin at that very moment of salvation. Certainly. In fact... If he was going to translate us out of the old man into the new man, he could have done every elect person at the very same time, right? And he could have said, I'm going to elect everyone at the very same point, give them salvation, apply it at the very same point, and at that point we would all be translated immediately to eternal bliss, eternal glory, eternal heavens with no, no crud, no sin in between. And all of us are saying, that, that would have been an okay plan for me. That would have been all right for me. But he didn't choose to do it that way because there's so much more that he wants to accomplish in us. He's got a plan, folks. And his plan is to work his work in us and through us so that ultimately we will be that new man, that new humanity in Christ not just with regard to our salvation, but also with regard to our sanctification. And he will do it ultimately through our glorification. Now don't miss the significance of the Pauline concept of new man and old man. Don't miss the significance of what he says is indicative of who I am and yet is also imperative for me to do. And we're going to find it out in Colossians chapter 3. For instance, and even though we're out of time, I'm going to give you a little bit of a sneak preview of what we're going to do next Lord's Day. Here's what he says. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. You know what you see right there? Indicative imperative. Indicative imperative. The little word if there it really could and probably should be translated since. Since. Since 
you have been raised up with Christ. Keep seeking the things above. That's indicative imperative. It's right there. It is indicative of you. It is part of who you are that you have been raised up with Christ. And as a result of your having been co-resurrected with Jesus Christ, here's the imperative, keep seeking the things above. You say, wait, I, I, I don't understand that. If I've been co-resurrected with Jesus Christ, if that's indicative of who I am, then why is there a need for me to keep seeking the things above if I've already been raised? And the answer is that the remaining sin in your life and my life will tug and pull at me, which will tend to mitigate against the very co-resurrection that is true of me. It'll work against me. The world, my sin, the devil, his angels will all work against the indicative part of me. They will all tell me that what is absolutely true of me, that I've been co-resurrected with Jesus Christ, isn't true. Or if it is true, that God has somehow made a mistake. Or if it is true, that God has somehow failed in His plan. Or if it is true, there's something that God hasn't told you that He should tell you, and since He hasn't told you, you don't know the full plan, and so you ought to give up. You see, there's all kinds of things like that that work against the indicative, work against who we are as co-resurrected beings in Christ, which then necessitates Paul saying in verse 1, since this is indicative of who you are and since everything will be fighting against you to affirm what you are in Christ, keep seeking the things above. It's imperative. It's imperative that you do that. Now do you understand in a, a far greater way what is true of my position in Christ and what must be true of my practice in Christ? What is true of me as an individual is also true of every other individual in Christ, the individual and the corporate. And when we get further in Colossians 3, and even in our little study, we'll even go over to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 to 24, and we'll see in two places here and there where it is said to us, to put off and to put on. And there it is again, indicative imperative. Since you have put off, it is imperative that you must put on. And it will be true of us, all of these things, co-resurrected with Christ, seated with Christ in the heavenlies, given all kinds of spiritual blessings, and yet all of those haven't been fully realized because God is continuing to work His plan He's continuing to bring final things to its ultimate fruition. And when he does, praise God, that day will bring for us no more sin. No more sin. No more struggle with sin. Sin will be ultimately vanquished. There won't even be the presence of it. There won't even be a need for the imperative. Because we will be who we are, truly and in our essence. Don't you want that day? Don't you want that day? Even as I struggle in my Christian life, I struggle with the indicative and the imperative. Because when I look at my life, sometimes I say, how could it be indicative of you that you're co-resurrected with Jesus Christ? Look at your life. Look at you. You're, you're about as, as, as cruddy a view 
of co-resurrection with Christ as is humanly possible. And yet it is also true that I struggle sometimes with the imperative. That sometimes when it says clearly, don't do that, or do do that, I don't do it. I don't do it. There's no reason for it. There's no logic for it. And yet, one day for us, Jesus Christ in his fullness will be revealed to us to the degree that we will be fully clothed in the righteousness of Christ to such a degree that all sin and its presence will be eradicated. I want those days. I want those days. Let's pray together. Father, as we've introduced this series on the new man in Christ, I pray that all of us would understand these rich theological truths to the degree that we are understanding them in ways we never thought possible. Help us even more clearly, Lord, to understand what is indicative of us as the new man, but also that which is imperative for us to put off. We thank you, we love you, and we know that in our struggle with sin, we sometimes don't believe what is indicative of us, that we're co-resurrected with Christ. And we sometimes don't believe that the imperatives that are given to us are commands to be obeyed with no option. And yet we also know that if we are to truly understand who we are in Christ, it can be in and of itself a, a motivation, a basis for holy living. And then when those imperatives come, we welcome them, not as burdens, but as blessings, because it's drawing us closer to glory. May we in our study continue to learn and grow so that we might be all that you would have us be as new men in Christ. For we pray in his name. Amen.